Hey, uh, we are jumping into the last week of our series that we've been in this month called uh, Inoculated, and uh, we'll actually kind of the foundation for what we're going to go into starting next week, which is another series that's focused in on the gospel. But before we get into today what we're going to look at, which is how do we overcome this form of inoculation, which is what we've understood is that we get enough of the truth of the gospel, which the gospel being that God is orchestrating throughout human history a plan that is reconnecting people back to him, and the primary avenue that happens through is through a relationship with Jesus. So because that's the gospel, we know that all of human history is this story, this thing that's unfolding. But there's a chance that we could get just enough of the gospel to convince ourselves that we're good. Uh, If I die, I'm going to go see Jesus. I'm not going to go to hell. I'm going to go to heaven. And so we settle in that, but we don't have enough of the gospel that actually changes and transforms who we are. Because Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that you wouldn't go to hell. Jesus died on the cross and the gospels unfolded because God is in the process of helping you live the life that he created you to live that you can't live apart from him. If you remember last week, if you weren't here, I strongly encourage you to go back online and listen because we talked about what is the unedited gospel? What is the whole story about? And we talked about at the beginning of the story back in Genesis When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they made a decision that you and I make every day of our lives. They were confronted with this decision. The decision was this. I can choose to determine right and wrong, good and evil for myself, or I can let God determine that for me. They obviously chose to say, "Um, we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to make our own determination. And in the process, they lost relationship with God. Because now they're left to themselves to try to figure it out. And now we see throughout all of human history how every human being makes that same choice every day. And when we make those choices, which we have, we look at the world around us and say, what in the world happened? We are now living the reality apart from that relationship with God. And now the world and our lives look like they do. Which means that there's something that God has done that he wants to actually change that reality. And that is in the form of what we call the gospel, the good news, that God can actually change our lives. But... Sometimes it doesn't drop all the way into our soul. And we've used the analogy through the series that it's like a coin in a vending machine. It gets in the machine, but if that coin never drops, then the machine never does what it's supposed to do. If the gospel never drops into our souls and changes and transforms us, then we can never fully be the person God created us to be because we're still laden with sin and mistakes and brokenness that is never dealt with in our lives, so we can't be who God's created us to be. So with that understanding, this morning we're going to talk about how do we get beyond that if we know that there's an immunity that's built up against the very thing that's supposed to save us and change us, how do we get over that inoculation? How do we really let the gospel drop into our souls? This morning, that's what we want to do. We want to take some time to talk about what that looks like in each one of our lives because one of the things I know it's true for us is that if you ever attempted to follow Jesus in your life, it's not easy. It's hard. It's difficult, and especially if you're wanting God to bring change and transformation in your life, it's a process that God works in our life that you and I have to stay committed to, but it's easy for us to kind of check out and pull back when things are difficult. Here, let me use another example, which I've used many times because we're talking about the analogy of coin back into the laundromat again. So if, you know, if you've been a part of Laundry Love or you've gone to laundromats, you kind of know the way things work. And so one of the things that, that you know, you're always, if you're in Laundry Love, you know, you're, you know you learn how to put quarters in machines over and over and over and over again. And so it's interesting, though, in the dryers in our laundromat, you know, you put them in, and sometimes the quarter doesn't take, right? And so it just sits there, and you can tell it's in there, it's sitting there, nothing's happening because the time hasn't registered. And so you have a variety of options of how to take care of this issue. The first option is what? Coin return, right? And how comes the quarter, and what do you do? You put it in again, and it gets stuck, coin return again and again. Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? 
And then if that doesn't work, you're like, well, maybe I'll get a different quarter. So put a different quarter in and try that. And then it gets stuck. And then out of frustration, you just kind of reach a point where actually, surprisingly, many times it works, is that you just hit the machine, right? You just hit it, and boom, you hear that quarter drop, and you're like, thank you. And then you keep putting more quarters in. But one thing you can't do, especially in laundry love, when you're trying to put quarters in to help fund somebody's laundry, is you can't walk away when it doesn't work. Because it may be fine for you to walk away, but it's not fine for that person who's standing there waiting for you to pay for their laundry. And one thing that's true about the way the gospel works in our life, the one thing you and I cannot do is walk away because we don't think it's working. Because God has made a way for the gospel to actually transform and change our lives, but we haven't reached that point yet. And we can never walk away because God is still at work in the process of what that looks like in our lives. So with that understanding this morning, there's five questions that I want to ask this morning that are kind of a points of reflection on our own lives that I'm asking you to ask of yourself this morning in terms of these are the things that are the issues or barriers or keys that help us overcome this immunity to the very thing, the gospel that's going to save us and transform us. And these are these questions. First one is this. Number one, does the Bible guide my life and beliefs? So you may think, why are you starting with the Bible? Well, the real question is, do I use God's word as a lens or standard by which my life is shaped? This is really important because this book, amazingly, inspired over 1,600 years, written by dozens of authors, inspired by God himself, has been sustained for thousands of years and holds the truth of what God has for our lives. And that's, that's, I mean, we could take a whole another Sunday to talk about the, how we can trust the Bible that we have and where it comes from and all those kinds of things. But that doesn't make any difference if this doesn't become the primary thing that shapes the reality of our lives, how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we understand God. Because if we'd never understand that God has given a standard by which he has articulated who he is what the world looks like, what sin is, where eternity is, what history looks like, all that is all contained in this. And if we believe that it's true, then what we struggle with is that a lot of times we take the Bible and we'll read it and maybe even study it, and we don't necessarily agree or like with what it says, so we move the boundaries a little bit. We ignore some of the things that we don't like or we don't understand, and we customize the Bible to fit what we want. That's the good thing about the Bible. It's supposed to be objectively received. Why? Because it reads our souls better than anything. Listen to what the, the writer of Psalms wrote in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 6. And this is using a bunch of different words to describe Scripture, describe the Bible to us. It says this, How can a young man or woman keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your, of your mouth, and in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as on all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. There's wisdom in that, that we have a standard that we live by, that God tells us what our lives are supposed to look like. In fact, it's the very thing that the Bible says of itself, that it isn't just human writing, it's divinely inspired. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, e equipped for every good work. I, I've discovered in my life that the danger of, of, of the way we handle the Bible comes through the form of assumptions. And let me explain. We have a tendency that we like to fill in the blanks for God. 
So we, we'll read the Bible, we'll hear a, a message on it, and so we'll, we'll try to connect it to something in our life, but we won't spend the time to really go deep into understanding what it means, and we'll just assume this is what God means. And then if you, if true for all of us, every single decision you make is based on an assumption you believe is true. Everything. And because of that, assumptions are very important things. They need to be true. Otherwise, you are making a decision based on bad information, which leads to a bad outcome in your life. Have you ever made an assumption that was wrong in your life and done something? Yes, we all have. We all have. I have lots of stories about wrong assumptions in my life. So I'll tell you just one of them. It happened about, about a year, year and a half ago. Um, so we were dealing with an issue with our, our toilet in our bathroom and downstairs, and so I replaced all the, the valve inside and everything, all the mechanisms inside, and I was rehooking up the toilet uh, to the supply line that comes out of the wall that goes into the bottom of the toilet. And so I was, I was tightening it down, and for some reason, everything else worked except there was this slow little leak coming out of this hose that connected to the toilet itself. So I'm like, well, that's not good. Obviously, it's not supposed to leak. And so I kept trying different things, and, and I was trying to see what was wrong with it. And then I tried YouTube. You know, YouTube answers all, right? And so, and everything I tried, it kept leaking. And so, you, you know, you got to put something underneath that. And I, had, I, don't, I have to go to work and got to do things. I have to wait till tomorrow. So I come back, and I'm trying to catch the water that's dripping. Anybody been there before? Now, I know there's limitations to my plumbing ability. And I know when I reach those. And I had reached it. So three days in, I called Phil Ramos. Most of you know Phil Ramos. And I said, Phil, help. I said, I, don't, I have reached the end of myself. I don't know what to do. So could you come help me? He said, yeah. He goes, I got things. He goes, I'll come tonight after, after I'm finished, and I'll, I'll, I'll come help you. I said, great. So he comes in, and I explain the situation. It's dripping. So Phil gets in there, and he starts taking apart what I've done. So he starts taking the hose off. And as he's doing it, he's working really hard at it. And so he stops, and he looks at me. He goes, man, you, you really got this thing on here. I said, oh, I did. He goes, why is it so tight? I said, well, I thought if it's leaking, the way you stop it from leaking is you just tighten it down, right? The tighter it is, the less likely the water's going to come out, right? And he looks at me, and if you guys, Grace, Phil is so gracious. He should have looked at me and said, you're an idiot, but he didn't, okay? <laughs> and he said, John, he goes, listen, he goes, these hoses are made to hand tighten and then just a slight quarter turn with a wrench and no water comes out. I'm like, so he pulls it all apart, and literally, like, took him a minute, put it back together, no leak. Now, I was grateful for Phil, but I felt like an absolute idiot, because my assumption was tighter is better, right? No, not in this situation, not when the hose is made for something else. How many times in, your, in our life have we assumed, oh, yeah, I know what God wants for my life. I know the truth of what the Bible says, and you don't realize that you're making an assumption based on something that's not true, because you haven't really listened, or you didn't want to hear the answer, or you didn't want to take the time to figure out, okay, what does this really mean? And that's why it's so important that we go to the scriptures, and that is why you read it daily, or you listen to messages on it, and you study it. You actually get into it. It becomes a part of your life. Why? Because it has the answers that we need. And here's the great thing about the Bible. It gives answers that you and I don't want, but it gives answers that we need. And that sometimes is the hardest thing for us to take. So how do we overcome inoculation? We believe that the Bible actually holds the keys to our life and our beliefs, and we follow it. Second thing, again, as we do each week, none of these get easier. Question number two, is obedience a priority in my relationship with Jesus? Now, before some of you tune out on this one, because obedience has become a bad word in the church, listen to some important keys about obedience. Did you know from the beginning of time when God set things in motion, and especially when God chose his people, Israel, which now he obviously his chosen people are the church on the face of the planet, 
there was a number of things, but one of the distinguishing factors of people who belong to Jesus and follow God is obedience. That's one of the differences between someone who lives in the world and someone who follows Jesus. That's, in fact, going back to when God was speaking to Israel, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, it says this. It says, God saying to his people, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. That was always supposed to be a part of it. Listen, you follow what I've laid out for you. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard, but it will, it will help you to live a life that I created you to live. You'll look different than the world that you're living in, which will be hard because you'll want to be just like the world. But it's one of the distinguishing factors that sets you apart from everybody else in the world. In fact, Jesus obviously underscores this, but he actually adds something that gives clarity to us. In John chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Now let that settle in for a minute. You know why that's important? Because most of us, when we hear obedience, when we hear commands, we think punishment and we think law. We think that, well, this is, our, this is what, we don't say this, but I'm convinced when it comes to obedience, we think God is this big ogre up in the sky who's just in a bad mood all the time that wants to make our life miserable, so he says you can't do anything fun. We don't say that, but that's what we think. That's when we look at God's rules and say, why would you do that? Because I want to live it this way, which is what? Going back to the garden. It's the very thing that Eve, Adam and Eve did. I'll determine what's good and bad. I'll determine what's right and wrong. And God says, no, you don't know. You're not God. You don't understand. And it's so important, this, this key of obedience, it's embedded in the very thing that we call mission, which is we're supposed to make disciples, which means help other people to follow Jesus. And here's a passage that you've probably heard a million times if you've been a part of Antioch for any amount of time, Matthew 28. This is what we call the Great Commission. Jesus instructs his followers that you're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's verse 20. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. There it is. It's embedded in there. Obedience. Why is this so important? Because obedience actually begins to shape and change our behavior. And it begins to actually transform our soul. How? Because love is the force, or the love is the motivation for obedience. And this is where we get it wrong. Because, now hear me, I know when you're young as a child and you're growing up in a home where you get punished, there's something about parents curbing behavior by punishment that helps you become safe. But if that mode stays in forever, you will never understand what it really means to obey. Because punishment breeds compliance, not obedience. And there's a huge difference between compliance and obedience. Compliance is I'm simply doing this not to get punished. Obedience is I'm doing this because I know you love me. Huge difference between the two. And the reality is, is that when there is love in a relationship, your behavior, your lifestyle gets shaped by that love. Now, it's a little bit different between us and God, but I want you to think in terms of our human relationships. Now, this, this illustration stands out for me. If you're single, it may be different but it could be a friendship. But I know that being married to Kim, my wife, has actually changed my behavior. Now, I'm not obedient to Kim. Kim's not obedient to me. But I know because she loves me and I love her, my life looks different than before we got married. Would you tr agree if you're married that this is true? Why? Because, oh man, I married her and now I can't do what I wanted to do and I can't have any fun anymore and man, I got the old bag at home and all that. Right? no. No, I don't live like I did when I was single. I don't hang out with my friends all night. I don't go dating other women. I don't do that. Why? Because I'm not single anymore. I'm married and I love Kim and I'm committed to her. Therefore, it changes the way I live my life. One of the things that surprised me the most when I first got married is within the first five years, my parents looked at me different. 
So do you know anybody can relate to this? I was the problem child growing up. I was the fourth of four, the only boy. I got more spankings than my three older sisters combined, not exaggerating. And so when, when I became a, a young adult, my parents, I could tell in their mind, they're thinking, oh no, is he ever gonna make it? And then when Kim and I started dating and then we got married, I remember there were so many times my parents, within the first five years of our marriage, they would come to me and they would look at me like puzzled. And they would not say this, but they would almost say this like, who are you? We don't remember you being such a nice human being before, right? It was Kim's influence in my life because her love for me and my love for her changed the way I live my life. It wasn't because I was compliant to Kim that I changed my behavior. It's because I loved her and she loved me. And if you and I understood that God of the universe loves us, and that's why when he says, do this and don't do that, we say, absolutely. Because I know even though I don't see what you see, I trust your love for me that I choose to obey you. See, that's the difference. And when that happens, guess what? The power of the gospel drops into our souls and changes the way we live our life. Not out of some compliance or obligation, but out of a desire in relationship, out of love. It's a huge difference. So the Bible stands as our standard, and then the understanding of obedience is the key for us to experience transformation in our lives. And there's a few things I want to highlight before we go to the next question that you can kind of look internally. How do you know if you have a desire to obey? Four things really quickly. They won't be on the screen, but just quickly. You have a sense of conviction in your life, which means you have the ability to hear and listen to God, and you know when he's speaking, even when you don't want to hear his voice. And he may be saying something that you don't want to hear, but you know it's the very thing that you need to hear. If that's not a part of your life, then you're going to struggle with obedience because you won't be hearing the Lord. The second thing is, if you have conviction, you also have to have humility. Because out of his love, God will say, you know what? You're headed down the wrong road. This is not what, what I have for your life. I have something different for your life. And humility says, okay, I don't have everything right. I have some things wrong, so I submit to what you want. The third thing you will experience in your relationship with God is you will have regret, remorse, and grief. Why? Because you will realize that you've messed up, but the good news is that God forgives you and gives you another opportunity. The last thing you'll have is repentance, which means your behavior will change. You just don't say, oh, sorry, God. Oh, well, big deal. No, I'm actually gonna make a commitment in my life to find a rhythm of life that I don't go down that road anymore. I'm not gonna live that way anymore. I'm turning from the way I used to live. The Bible calls that the fruit of repentance. Third question. Do I see God's grace as a motivation or a license? This is, this is extremely important. Is grace a cheap means to live out how I want to live or a costly price that motivates obedience to Jesus in my life? I am convinced in my time, because I've been around for a little while, and I've watched some seasons in the church overall go through, that we, have, we swing from extremes and we swing, we, probably 20, 30 years ago, we swung to a very legalistic season in the church where, where, where church was driven by uh, the obedience, not out of love, but obedience out of compliance. And so morality was the pinnacle of Christianity. And what happens is anytime we swing that far, eventually there's a correction that comes. But you know what? We never correct to the middle. We always correct to the opposite. So in the last 20 to 30 years, you know what the church did? It swung to the other side, to the side of grace but not biblical grace. Because what happened is we went from, I have to do these things, otherwise I'm wrong and I'm sinful and I'm morally, I'm morally impure, and we swung to the other side, which is, hey, God forgives me, I'm under grace, stop judging me. And we live over here. This is just as damaging and just as incorrect as living over here. Why? Because grace is never a license 
to do what we want. It's a motivation to do what God wants. So let me, let me read a couple passages of scripture to give some context. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in the paraphrase called The Message. So Paul writes this. He says, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. So we are under grace, but what does grace look like? In Timothy, or excuse me, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul also writes this. He says, that this the way we sh- is the way we should live because God's grace that can save everyone has come. It teaches us not to live against God nor to do the evil things that the world wants to. Instead, that grace teaches us to live in the present age in a wise and right way and in a way that shows we serve God. We should live like that while we wait for our great hope and the coming of the great glory of, uh, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us so he might pay the price to free us from all evil and to make us pure people who belong only to him, people who are always wanting to do good deeds. Do you see that? What's the motivation for good deeds? Grace. And we don't understand that. See, we live in in law and compliance over here, or we say, hey, grace means I can do whatever I want to do. And both of them are wrong. And here's how I know in my own experience. There's a, there's a combination that God always uses to redeem us. It's mercy followed by grace. Mercy says, you deserve, but you don't get this. I'm not going to punish you. And you don't deserve what I'm going to give you, which is reward, and I give it to you. That's mercy and that's grace. And that's supposed to be the driving motivator in our lives to follow Jesus because grace motivates better than compliance and punishment. It always does. It always does. And I watched this in the evolution of my parents' parenting of me as I grew older. I mentioned earlier, I got more spankings than my sisters. No lie, I did. And up until like middle school, almost into middle school, the primary mode that my parents used was to get me to be compliant because compliance was important because at that age, you do stupid things, you can harm yourself. So they used a paddle. I know you don't do this anymore. In the state of California, you can use an open hand, but you can't use a paddle. But in our household, we had a paddle that sat on a bookshelf in our, in our hallway. And it's funny, the paddle was painted the same color as the bookshelf. It had to fit the decor. I don't know why. <laughs> but that was a reminder. And I used to remember the, the way it would work. I would mess up, which I did often. And mom or dad would say, go to your room. And I knew I'd go in my room and wait till, usually if it was mom, I'd go, Whew. if it was dad, I'd think, oh crap, it's going to hurt. <laughs> and so he'd come in and then he'd, he'd spank me and it was horrific. And then you know, it would last for a day or two, and then I'd do something stupid again. Anybody remember that kind of thing? But as I got into middle school, they stopped doing that. They started to change the way they punished me. Obviously, they used more things more like you're going to be grounded, all that kind of stuff. But then when I got into middle school, I've shared, and I won't go long into this, but I've shared my own story about my, my, my issues with fear and anxiety and, and making decisions to do things that were based out of that. And so in my lifetime, I've run away twice from home. Um, when I, once when I was eight in my great wisdom, I hopped on my big wheel and I was out of there and it lasted a whole like hour or two. And then I came back home when I was in middle school because of fear, I ran away from home for a day and stayed away for all day because I didn't want to go to school. And, and, and there was a whole, whole bunch of backstory behind it. But 
I knew, though, in my mind, knowing from what I had grown up in, that if I, when I got back home, I was a dead man. I mean, this is a bad thing. I know I'm giving my mom and dad more than just a bad day. They call the school. The school's looking for me. They're looking for me. Everyone's looking for me. They can't find me. And finally, it starts to rain. So I head back home. I sneak into the garage. My dad sees me there. So like eight hours after I had run away, I find my way into my dad kind of helping me out of this corner of the garage. And then we start walking towards the back door. And he was very calm. And I just, honestly, I looked around. I thought, this is the last time I'm going to see, you know, the clouds and the rain. And so I literally go in the back door, and I'm like, I know how this works. Here it comes. Go to your room. And sure enough, my dad said, let's go to your room. I'm like, here it comes. So he goes, no, I want you to go to a room. He walks me in a room. He goes, I want you to change because I was soaking wet. He goes, and then when you're done, I want you to come out. I'm like, oh, I've never heard that before. Usually he comes in. I'm coming out. So I came out of the bedroom, and I walk into the kitchen, and my dad is standing there, and my mom has just finished making a hot meal for me. And so they sat down at the, di at the dining room table with me, and they looked at me, and I was waiting. Here it comes. They're just going to give it to me. Like, did you I can't believe you did this, and what you did to us, and da da da, da and None of that. They sat there, and they said, we were so sad that you were gone. They started to cry. They said, we didn't know where you were. We were afraid. We didn't know what was going to happen to you. We were so glad that you're back. And I'm like, okay, now let's get to the punishment, right? <laughs> and they never punished me. It's the last time I ever even thought about running away. It shifted something in not only my understanding of my parents' love for me, but it shifted in my understanding of who God is. Because I remember for the first time, it was really, honestly, I was in seventh grade. That was the first time in my life, although they had said it many times, that was the first time in my life I realized my parents really did love me. They had absorbed my stupidity to bring me back home. What were they doing? Mercy and grace. So I didn't do the stupid thing that I did twice in my life before. Why? Because I knew that I, I was motivated by what? Grace. Because I guaranteed if they would have disciplined me like they disciplined me before, you know what I would have done? I would have run away again. But grace motivated me to be obedient. See, if we understood grace, it's not cheap, it's not license, it's motivation that the God of the universe says to you, I won't punish you, but I will punish my son in your place. And I won't condemn you to death and, or, or withhold things from you. I'll bless you in this life and in the life to come, which is mercy and grace. So you will live the life I created you to live. That's the gospel penetrating our soul because grace motivates better than compliance and punishment every single day of the week. That's why God chose to be gracious to his people. And if we understand that, the gospel will transform our soul. Then the fourth question. Again, another difficult one. Am I dying every day so that Jesus can live in and through me? Does my commitment to Jesus actually cost me anything? Now here, we've talked about this. Salvation is a free gift, but guess what it does? It costs you everything. Because you have to embrace it and maintain it and see God work in it. But understand this, there's something that has to change to break the rhythm of life that we establish for ourselves. Because we're just like Adam and Eve, and when we're faced with a decision for the first time in our lives to choose, am I going to choose what's right and wrong, good and evil, for myself, or am I going to let God do that? The second time is always easier. And so is the third, and so is the fourth, and so is the fifth. And you and I settle into a rhythm of life that disconnects from God every single day. Something has to happen. Something has to be reset in us that goes back to the reality that God is God. He determines what's right and wrong, what's good and evil for my life. Why? Because he loves me and I trust him. So what resets that? Jesus actually says what resets this. He puts it this way. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. 
says, Jesus said to all of them, if anyone wants to follow me, he must give him of himself and his own desires. He must take up his cross every day and follow me. If anyone wants to keep his own life safe, he will lose it. He must lose it. But if anyone gives up his life because of me, he will save it. What is Jesus talking about? In order to live the life God wants you to live and create you to live, you have to die first. Not physically die. Jesus took care of that one for us. But we have to die to our agenda, to die to our rhythm and way of living because we've established it well apart from God. And the only way that that gets changed if there's a dynamic reset in our life. And that's why Jesus used this. Every single day you have to die to yourself. You're dying to your own agenda. You're dying to your own what wants and needs, what you think you want, why? Because in dying to that, you will find life. You'll find life not in yourself. You'll find life in Jesus. And that's why Paul says this. And I read this at the beginning of the series, but in, Gal- in Galatians 2.20, Paul says this. He says, I have been put, to, put up on the cross to die with Christ, symbolically, of course. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in, in the, this body, I live by putting my trust in the Son of God, who was the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is that? I can't live this life anymore. I can't do it. I've tried and I fail miserably. The world has tried. We've done it for thousands and thousands of years. And it's progressively getting worse all the time. Why? Because we're continuing to make decisions for ourselves apart from God. So what is God saying? There has to be a reset. There has to be something where you die to the old way of living. And that's what baptism symbolizes. What? I am dead to the way I used to think and live. And now I'm alive to the way God wants to work in my life. That's the whole process. Now, I have a few friends who've gone through this, and I've never had to go through this, but I would not want to go through this. If you have AFib, you know what I'm talking about. There's a number of different ways. AFib is when your heart gets out of rhythm. It doesn't stay in a normal rhythm. and It can, it's, can speed up. It can slow down. And doctors have all kinds of ways to try to reset it because you can't live in AFib. You can't. It's not sustainable. So something has to happen. Something has to change. Otherwise, you're going to die. You're going to have a stroke or your heart's going to give out. So one of the ways that the doctors have devised that is actually doing what they normally do to resuscitate somebody. They do that on you while you're awake. They shock you to reset your heart. Doesn't that sound fun? Isn't that desirable? Anybody want to sign up for that? No, thanks. I've talked to a couple friends who had it done. They said, not a fun experience. But what happens is because their, their, their heart is out of rhythm, something has to shock it back into right rhythm. And so when that works, that means you go through that jolt and then the rhythm gets reestablished and now your heart is what it's doing what it's supposed to do the way it was wired to do and now you can live your life. Why does Jesus say every single day you have to die to yourself? Why? Because I know for me, maybe not you, but for me, I have to die to myself every single day. Because the little thing I talked about in worship this morning, when I get up in the morning, what am I doing? I'm going through all my selfish cycles of what's gonna go on in my life today and what I need and my anxiety and... Anybody relate? And I need a a shock. It says, no, 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 no. It's not about you. It's about what I want to do through you. It's about what I want to do in you. It's about the transformation I want to bring. Get off of yourself every single day. I have to be reminded of that. That's why Jesus says daily. Why? Because I keep trying to resurrect the old flesh and go back to the way I used to live and go back to the way I used to think. And Jesus says, no, there's a new way of living. There's a new rhythm to life. So then the final question is this. If we're going to overcome inoculation and we're going to be transformed by the gospel, ask this question, do I truly know Jesus? And how do I know that I truly know Jesus? Because there's a lot of definitions for how I truly know Jesus. I go to church. 
I was raised in a family that's Christians. I prayed a prayer. I read the Bible. I give some money sometimes. I try to be a good moral person. All of those are great things. But none of those are connected to the primary reason that you know you know Jesus. Because you're talking about behavior, not relationship. And we get stuck on behavior before relationship, and Jesus never does that. He always just establishes relationship first, and then behavior gets addressed later. We sing a song that says that God loves us, that he won't leave us the way we are. He won't leave us where we are. Why? Because God's love compels him to help us be transformed into the person he created us to be. So let me read a, a portion of scripture. Now, this is one of the scariest portions of scripture you're going to read. In fact, I had a dialogue with somebody in between services because this is the one that scares you. But let me, let me read it and talk a little bit about it. These are the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27, I've read these, these verses before, but I want you to see the full context because Jesus gives a key that shows evidence of the relationship that you have with him. So in verse 21, Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many mighty works in your name? Let me just pause for a moment. That's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, shoot, cast out demons, prophesy, which means you're speaking on behalf of God, do miracles. That's like, yeah, I want that stuff. But Jesus goes on. He's, he's saying, you can do all that stuff and still miss it. Because he goes on, verse 23, he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? What is Jesus talking about? He goes on. Here's the key. Before I go into verse 24, here's the key. So many times when people want to get to this passage, we, people will quote this passage and they'll say, yeah, my life is built on the rock. And I'm like, okay, what's the rock? Oh, the rock is Jesus. Well, sort of. Listen to what Jesus says the rock that we build our lives is on. Verse 24, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. What is the rock? It's obedience to Jesus. It's not Jesus, because that's easy to say, oh, my life's built on the rock, Jesus. No, obedience to Jesus. That's a little bit different. Then verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So what is obedience? Obedience is the evidence of relationship. That's what it is. Because you see the context? Jesus says, I never knew you. And how do you know that you know me? If you keep my commands. That's the sign. That's what your life is built on. Why? Because if you know I love you and you love me, you will do what I ask you to do. Why? Because you know it's the best thing for you. And therefore, we build our lives, yes, on Jesus, but we build our life on what? The rock of obedience to Jesus, which means he calls the shots. And for some of us, this is the very reason why we haven't experienced change and transformation in our life. Why? Because we want the pill. We want some magic potion, but we don't want to follow Jesus and obey him because obedience is hard. But obedience actually brings transformation. Why? Because it's allowing our behavior to be shaped by the love of God through relationship with Jesus, which changes everything about our lives. So let me close with this. In fact, in just a few moments, the worship team will come in and join us, and we're going to sing that same song we sang earlier. 
but I, I, I want us to capture this because this is so important. And please forgive me for a little bit of review here, but this is so important. As we, we finish off the series, we'll go into a series that really, it's not a period, it's a comma. We're going to go into a series called The Gospel Shapes. And for a number of months, we're going to talk about if this thing that we just went through over the last four weeks is true, this story that we're a part of, God reconnecting people back to him through Jesus throughout human history, if this is really true, then that reality, the gospel, shapes every part of our life. Which means we don't get to stand back and subjectively say, oh, this is how I believe, this is what I'm supposed to do, without going back to the scriptures and who Jesus is and how that shapes our opinion and our actions when it comes to living our life. It is the guidebook from the Bible, and it is the reality of the fact, if God is trying to transform my life, then I have to do and live and think and act and speak like he wants me to do. Why? Because he knows what he's doing. But here's the key when we move forward in this, and this will be the key throughout this for the months ahead. I said this at the beginning of this series. There is nothing deficient with the gospel to transform the human soul. Nothing deficient. What is the issue? Right here. The issue is our heart. And you remember week one of this series, we talked about what Jesus told the story of the par a parable of the sower who threw seed out. And he was talking about the seed had nothing wrong with it. The seed was effective, but it was the soil that the seed landed on that determined how effective the seed would be, if it would grow, if it would produce anything. And so for us, we have to think about this. If the reason that I'm not experiencing transformation is not because the gospel can't do it, it's because there's something that's inhibiting that in my life, I need to address it. This morning before first service, as we do every week, we pray, and we pray kind of individually for about 15 minutes, then we collectively come together. And by the way, anybody in the church is welcome to come to that. It starts at 8.15, goes to 8.30. And then we say, I ask the question, what is God saying today? What is God saying to us? We're listening, because we believe. We sang a song, speak to us. Yeah, he does. And somebody shared this morning, the Lord gave them an image or a picture of something that was exactly the appropriate kind of thing of what God was obviously doing today, and that's this. This picture was, as we've been going through the series, there's like this wall or this barrier that God is moving to try to break through, break through that inoculation to get to the heart of who we are. And in this image, this person saw, they were standing in front of that wall, and they could see the wall, and they know that Jesus was trying to break down the wall, but here's the problem. They were standing in front of the wall, blocking Jesus from it. They were becoming a barrier to the barrier, and literally running interference so Jesus wouldn't touch the barrier, until finally they realized, Jesus wants to break through the barrier, and the biggest issue is not the barrier, the biggest issue is who? It's me. I'm the one that's getting in the way that what God wants to do in my life. And in the image, he's grabbed a sledgehammer next to Jesus and watched that wall get destroyed and that barrier be broken down. Jesus uses the image of soil. Soil that is either callous because it's been trampled down by repeated walking over it, which really symbolizes, I'm convinced, that some of us have become apathetic and callous towards God because we're disappointed with him. Because we've asked and we've prayed and we sought. And the very thing that we have really given God as the litmus test, if he's whether or not he's God or not, he hasn't come through on. And so what do we do? God, you're not God. And we close up. And we become callous. I just talked to somebody in between services. That's right where they're at. And they've gone through a lot of suffering and pain in their life. And I can understand it. Or maybe 
there's something underneath the surface that we're not really seeing or don't want to deal with. Maybe three inches down, there's bedrock. And so when the seed hits it, soil's good on top, but as soon as the roots start to grow and then the sun comes out and heat sets in, what does roots do when it gets hot? They go deeper. Why? What are they doing? They're going after water. But if the root hits bedrock, they die. Why? Because the sun scorches them and they die. And so many times there's stuff underneath the surface either we know about or we don't know about that we don't want to deal with it. And God's saying, you've got to deal with it because it's killing you. Or maybe the soil itself is good. The problem is it's just a little too crowded because now we've got Jesus talks about weeds and thorns, and they've mixed in with the good seed and the soil, and they're growing side by side. The problem is, is that our lives are too full for God to really do anything. We don't have time for God to transform us. Why? Because we're too busy pursuing our hopes and our dreams and everything that we think that our life's supposed to have, and we've left God out of the equation. And the only thing he adds to it is a little layer of icing on the top that's supposed to make it all good, not realizing he is the foundation of our lives. So you have to start weeding out what? All of the, the things that you think is supposed to make your life meaningful and happy until you get what? To soil that's pure and clean and ready to receive. Because when the soil's good and it's not crowded and there's no rocks in it, guess what the seed does? It grows. This is nature. I watched it happen in the last two weeks in my front yard. I'm not much of a green thumb, but I like, I'm a control, I have control issues. I really do. I like, I like my grass green, and I like it when there's no, like, dead patches. Anybody relate to me? Please say yes. Okay, I'm not the only person in the room. It's the one thing in my life I feel I can control. So I mow my lawn, and you can ask my neighbors. They know. They're like, they, his lawn is, like, perfect. I try to get it as close to a golf course as possible, okay? It isn't always successful, but sometimes you get dead patches, and sometimes the sprinkles don't work right. All this happens, and so I ended up with, I removed some, some plants and stuff, and so I had this dirt patch that's on my front yard. I'm like, okay, so I'm not real good at this, but I know if I go to, I go to Lowe's or Home Depot, I buy this little container of grass seed, and it's grass seed for dummies. That's what it should say on it because it's for people like me. It has instructions, and I've learned when you read instructions, a lot of times things work better. I know for some of you, you don't believe that, but it actually is true. And so I started reading the instructions, and so it actually tells you. It says, okay, what does it say to start with? The soil. Sure enough, make sure the soil is clean, and it's turned up, and it's soft. But what's really cool about this soil, this, this seed for dummies, is it also has soil inside of it. So when you start spreading the seed, guess what comes out with the seed? Soil. So just to make sure that if you skip the soil part, they've got that covered for you. So you start sprinkling it around, and then, which is really cool, when it comes out, the soil's brown. And they said if the soil is brown, that means it's dry, it needs to be watered. So you water it till it turns black. When it turns black, it's watered, you're good. But if it starts to turn brown again, what do you have to do? Water. I'm like, I can do that. So I did that for about a week. And I'm really protective of my little patch of grass. I, do, I mow around it. Nobody steps on it. And then it's right next to my, my main sprinkler valve that decided to go haywire about a week and a half ago. So I fought the battle with this stupid sprinkler valve. And like the toilet, I realized I reached the limit of my ability to fix a sprinkler. So I called her landscaper and said, you got to help me. So he came and he changed the valve. And I got home from work that night. I went out in my front yard and I texted him. and said, hey, is it fixed? He goes, yeah, it's fixed. So I walk over to see a huge footprint right in my grass seed. Sprinklers work great, but I was so upset. 
And I'm like, this is not going to work. I've been trying. And not only was there one big footprint, there was like they kicked it. It's like they tried to destroy it, it felt like. So I'm like, all right, well, we'll see what happens. So I watered it. And guess what? Grass still grows even when you step on it. Even when you kick it, why? Because when the soil's good, the seed gets far enough down that no matter what happens on the top, it still grows down below. And again, why? Because the soil was good, even my landscaper couldn't destroy what was supposed to happen. Now, I'm not saying my landscaper's the devil, so don't go down that road, okay? <laughs> He's a good guy, all right? But I want us to understand, the soil's the key. The soil's the key, and so as we, we're going to conclude in a moment, we're going we're gonna to sing a last song, but as we go through this journey of the gospel shapes, if you start feeling pushback, please question the soil of your heart and take it to heart. God, what are you saying to me? Is there something I've missed? Is there something that needs to be removed? Is there something that needs to be changed? Because again, it isn't going to be about opinions about things, about this belief or that belief. It's going back to this and saying, what does this say? And how are we supposed to live our lives? Because the argument can't be amongst us. The argument can't even be with me. You have to take it back to Jesus and the word that he inspired for our lives and ask the question, how does the gospel shape this part of my life? Let's go ahead and close our eyes. As I mentioned, the, the worship team is gonna join us. We're gonna go back into the song that we sang earlier, <clears throat> which outlines the gospel for us. And I just want that to be kind of this anthem of celebration of the fact that Jesus has done these things for us to make it possible for our lives to be all that they're supposed to be. But in preparation to conclude this, this service and for that song, I, 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 there's, two, there's two primary groups of people that really this series has been really to address. And one is, is the first group, which is probably the majority of us in this room. We've been followers of Jesus for quite some time. We've prayed and we give and we read the Bible and we might serve and we do things that we know are, are, are the Christian things to do, but, but deep down inside there, there is not a deep connection with God. There isn't a deep passion. There isn't that vital relationship that either we long for or maybe we had at one point, but we don't seem to have it anymore. And so because of that, we are, we're not seeing change. We're not seeing the fruit of the seed growing into a plant that produces something in our lives. But we're hungry for it. And the Lord is saying to us through this series, you've allowed yourself to become inoculated to the very thing that will save your life. But you haven't allowed a lethal dose to hit your soul yet. The coin hasn't dropped yet. You've put up walls and barriers. You've crowded your life with things so that the gospel can't do its work in your life. And so he's calling you today to once again do the very thing that Jesus said to do. To die to yourself every single day. Not die to die, die to live. And that is to believe this. It's actually possible that God has a better life for you. Not a, a life that's problem-free, suffering-free, but he has a life that is more fulfilling for you than the life you've created for yourself. Could that be true? And that Jesus is saying, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose your life in me. And if that's you today, then he's calling you to a point of surrender again. He's saying, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to let me snap you out of that selfish cycle and get your eyes back on me, the one who determines right and wrong.
good and evil, what's best for you. Why? Because he loves us. Then maybe there's a second group of people this morning that you, or today you, you've never come to that place where you say, okay, I'm in. I'm gonna choose to follow Jesus, become a Christian, turn my life over to God, because if I'm honest with myself, I am doing what Adam and Eve did so many years ago, and that is every day of my life, I determine for myself what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, and I'm gonna be honest, it's not working for me. I keep messing up, I keep struggling, I keep failing, I know it's harming me, I know it's harming other people around me, and now I'm done, and I wanna give up, and I wanna surrender to Jesus. If that's you today, know this, what Jesus has done for you, which we're gonna sing about in just a moment, that all the failure and all the brokenness and all the sin in your life, the things that your failed attempts at being your own God and creating your own life, Jesus has taken all those which would have separated you from God and he took them on himself when he died on the cross. He paid for them. He took the punishment for you so that you could have the mercy that says no punishment for you and the grace that says reward for you. And that's what God desires for you right now. But you have to be willing to say, I surrender my life. Jesus, I invite you into the soil of my heart to begin to do what you want to do to fulfill your purpose and your agenda for my life. No longer am I in charge. You're in charge. I surrender to you. If that's you, then as we sing and as I pray in a moment, you just say that to God. Jesus, I am giving my life to you. I give up and I give myself to you. So Lord Jesus, in these moments, I pray that you would do your work. You had an agenda for this day, for this moment, from the beginning of time. That we would be here in this place listening to your words about the truth of this gospel that can transform us so that we would surrender to you. So Lord, whether it's for the hundredth time or for the first time, we want to surrender to you. We want the gospel to be what Paul said it was. It is the power of God for our salvation that transforms our soul. So Jesus, would you come and do that in our hearts today? In your name.